Hello, everybody. I hope most of you are in better organized shape after the holidays than I am, because honestly, it's are we back? <laughs> We're supposed to be back. Um, today is the beginning of a, a really, really interesting conference in town that, oh my Lord, there's about a thousand experts on all matters coastal who are um, on on the stage, in the audience, at the convention center, talking about basically the state of the coast. So what does that mean? We have, as you all know, enormous amount of coastal erosion. You hear different numbers every day, and I, I don't really trust any of them, but I can tell you that we're losing square miles on a daily basis in, in this uh, region. And um, these folks are the folks who are trying to figure out what to do about it. And um, they've been working on it for some time and a lot of different levels, both advocacy folks as well as the people in, in charge of government and then the science people and everybody. So they're all together in the convention center right now. So, you know, I, I, you probably can still get in. It's not the cheapest conference in the world, but it, it certainly is worth it. At any rate, we're bringing to you a couple of people who are there, high-level experts, Uh, first is going to be Mark Davis, who's the director of the Tulane Institute of Water Resources Law and Policy. He's going to be followed by Johnny Bradbury, who's actually the executive assistant to the governor for coastal affairs and chair of something called the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. And that organization is kind of the key state organization that is really trying to figure out how to protect us from Oh, things like rising oceans and the channels and that have been created by the oil companies and the levees on the river that keep the silt from overflowing. So, Mark, are you on the line? I am here, Jean. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I know you're wanting to be in all the sessions and fascinated by what everybody has to say, and you were uh, moderating your own panel. So I'm I, I really just – I have a very simple question, and that is – What's going on? Well, what's going on is, and you get right down to it, and this is sort of like a, a church gathering where they've got all the congregants and they're reminding them that it's time to get right um, because you know, Louisiana is running out of time and running out of options if we want to keep life as we know it here moving forward. Um They've shown some new maps which, you know, forecast where you know, water is going to be you know, given sea level rise. And the sea level rise projections are a whole lot worse than they were five years ago, which is really sobering. So I think what we're hearing here right now is you know, there are things that can be done for some places in the coast, but we're running out of time to do them. And then it's really important for us to get our plans, our politics, and our people, you know, on the same page as quickly as we can. And um, it's, you know, it's both exciting and really sobering. So here's what I find is really hard to deal with, and I, I'm sure a lot of people share my confusion. On the one hand, you have, as you say, higher rates of, of sea level rise, um, higher rates of coastal erosion than have been projected in the past. 
Um, and then you have, um, uh, you know, very vigorous efforts to try to address it and to protect us, which nobody really knows if they can work. And then finally, you have the question of, of if, if, it, if all this doesn't work, and even if we really do, you know, get it right, get what we think is right, um, in the end, can we actually protect our coast? And, and what if people have to move? And how do they move and where do they move? I was fascinated recently by the um, federal commitment to move people from the Ile St. Charles off the coast of Louisiana. I put a bunch of money into it. I think I remember $10 million. I don't know if that number is accurate because I'm not a numbers person, but that's what I'm remembering. Um, to move folks off this island that is just just drifting away into the Gulf and get them on terra firma, you know, onto, onto solid ground. So it, those are like three different tracks. I, you know, okay, it's getting worse, faster. Um, we're doing everything we can, are we, and we have to do more. But in the final analysis, can we do it? And then finally, you still have climate deniers. I have smart friends, smart friends who are still climate deni- climate change deniers? Well, let me take that in some mix of the, some variety, scrambled order. Um, first of all, whether you believe in climate change or not, um, the seas are rising and they're rising fast, and, and our lands are sinking, sinking too fast. Um, and whether you Believe it or not, a lot of people who are going to determine what life here looks like, insurance companies, mortgage lenders, and the like, they believe it. And so if you can't convince them that you have a plan to make this a safe place to live and work, don't count on them investing here. The issue about Ile de Jean Charles, and the number is closer to $50, billion, uh, $50 million, not 10, um, what that does is really gives us a chance to see, you know, what we can do with the question of moving communities, particularly, you know, uh, communities that have not normally been privileged with the resources and the political connections to have those options. Um, we don't know yet where they will go. We don't know if everybody on the island really is comfortable with it. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen to the island, you know, when they leave. But one thing is certain, they're leaving in the same way that, quite frankly, a lot of people in Cameron Parish, Lower Plaquemines, Lower Jefferson, Lower St. Bernard, and a whole bunch of others, not only are they going to leave, they have been leaving. And um, so I think that's one of the things we have to ask ourselves is not so much, you know, are people going to have to go? The short answer is yes, they are. But the better question is, where are they going to go? And can we keep some sense of our traditions in our community um, you know, together as that happens? Um, I think it's always really important to re- remember that, you know, we were built by mobile communities. You know, people came here in various ways, some voluntary, some not so. But you know, there is nobody living in our part of South Louisiana who's Families were here 400 years ago, and it's not on a permanent basis. So, you know, moving with the environment and moving for opportunity and moving to escape, you know, you know, a, bat, a worse situation somewhere else, um, that's part of who we've been, and we're going to have to get reacquainted with that part of our nature. 
um, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating because the issue of as you raised, you know, our flood protection. One thing I'll promise you is that they're better than they were, you know, ten years ago. That doesn't take a lot. Are they good enough? Probably not, and certainly not for what we're going to be encountering with additional rising seas and coastal change. And, um, but we're in a better position than many other places. I, mean, I, could have, I could be on a radio show in, in Miami, Florida, or Norfolk, Virginia, and have exactly the same questions, and the options that they have are different and in some ways worse. Wait, this is the first time I have heard that statement. So that's news to me. How can Miami be worse than us? Explain that to me. Well, there are two ways. First of all, there are a lot more people in Miami. They live, all of them live in essentially a hurricane zone. Um, They don't really have any high ground to move to. Three feet of sea level there is three feet of sea level rise. They don't have a river to build land, and they are living right on the edge of the ocean. And perhaps more importantly, their drinking water comes from underground, and salt water as sea level rises is moving underground. So even if they can protect their homes and buildings from storms, storm surges, they're losing their, their drinking water supply. Sure, they can invest in desalination, but that is not a cheap or easy proposition. So they're looking at a rough future, and they're already getting chronic street flooding just on a high tide. So sea level rise in in Miami is experienced very differently than sea level rise is in New Orleans. Who, who else is in um, you know, I, I'm asking you this at the same time that I, my husband, Bob Tannen, whether you know this yet or not, I don't know, but he, he was at the Rauschenberg retreat and he did maps of all 68 counties on the coast and showed exactly what the sea levels are from, mm-hmm. from you know, sort of basically equals the sea level and then above it and then higher. And it, it's, it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture at all. But... Who else is in that kind of condition, in Miami's condition? And I'm really interested in our positioning, in a sense, because I was thinking the same thing you started out with. How are we going to get people to invest and come here if we're in so much trouble? But if we're not in as much trouble as a lot of other coastal places, and if we're getting ahead of the curve because we're doing all this research and work that our various organizations, both um, advocacy as well as um, official government agencies, are doing. Maybe that's going to take us ahead of the game. I don't know, but who's worse? Well, uh, the places that I look at that are, you know, you know and that we hear from, uh, you know, South Florida is clearly one, Norfolk, Virginia, which is there on the James River and the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, Chesapeake Bay, you know, is part of the ocean. Effectively, it's where rivers meet the sea. It's an estuary. Sea levels are rising there, as they are here. But because of groundwater pumping, because they, you know, they get their, most of the water for Norfolk, Virginia, comes from underground, they're sinking the city. It's, well, that's happening here, too, though. Than New Orleans. They're sinking faster than New Orleans. They don't have a levee system. Yet there's something in Norfolk that is very important to America, and that is the world's largest Navy base. That, from a national security standpoint, 
they don't know. The future of Norfolk, Virginia is becoming a national security issue. They're looking to us for ideas, you know, for what they can do. Now, again, we have the Mississippi River, which can build land up to a point. It can maintain land up to a point. They don't have that. We have levees you know, that are designed to take a one-in-100-year storm, which around here is a really big storm. It's not like another storm in the Netherlands or England or someplace like that. They don't get hurricanes. And Norfolk does. So they don't have the levees that we have. They're watching the water supply go away, and they're sinking, and they don't, they're trying to figure out what can they do. So those are the kinds of things I think we should be looking at. It's, we should take, do everything we can to make our place as safe as we can for our own reasons. But we should also be aware that this is a, we're essentially you know, competing against other people for attention and investment. And we've been on the losing end of that for about 70 years. This is, up to a point, an opportunity for us to, you know, show that we are, we are managing risk and we're, and we're trying to protect culture you know, in a way that other places aren't, may not be doing as well or as quickly. How are we doing that? Because I, I hear people, you know, I love the way we all talk about culture, but... You know, in my experience, we don't do nearly enough for it. So I, I'm, I'm real curious to hear it. What, what is it we're doing to protect our culture as we have to move inland and things like that? Well, I think that's what the Ile de Jean Charles is, is an interesting thing to try to do because it's not really about just protecting people. The idea behind that program is to recollect people, most notably members of that Native American tribe. As we know for it's a certainty that that island is going to disappear and the people on it are going to have to go somewhere. Where? They could go to Iowa, some of them could go to Ohio, some of them could go to Georgia. The idea is to move them you know, to a safer place, you know, terra firma, maybe not terra firma, but you know, where you're, you're not only taking the people who are on the island now, but you're trying to take the people who've already left and give them a chance to reconnect as a community. That is going to be hard to do, but it is worth trying to do. And if you can begin doing that for communities like Ilajan Charles and Native American communities, then perhaps we can start to develop the skills and sensitivities that allow us to do things other than, you know, you know, blasting our dislocated people across the continent. You know, maybe we the way can we did after Katrina. Options. I said the way we did it after Katrina. Well, because Katrina was unplanned, and uh, and the idea prior to Katrina. In fact, you may recall, Gene, you know, it was only after Hurricane Andrew that the Red Cross decided to no longer open shelters. You know, really south of I-10. You used to evacuate to New Orleans. You used to evacuate to Thibodeau. Now you evacuate from those places. And so we have been, you know, quickly, in, you know, in, society, in, in you know, governance terms, you know, changing the way we plan all of that. But what happens 
when you have an evacuation plan that is focused on just merely getting people on buses as opposed to taking them places that are ready for them and, more importantly, having a vehicle for returning them to a community that's going to be safe enough for them to return to, those are different questions. What's confusing, I think, also, Mark, is that the experience that we had with Isaac where people um, who had moved up to places like St. Charles and then they got hit up there almost as bad, if not worse, than they would have had they stayed um, uh, below New Orleans. Well, I think one thing we've learned is that, you know, you really, you know, you have to have evacuation as an option, but it shouldn't be your first one. I mean, quite frankly, the dislocation, economic and culturally and just, you know, physically, for some people, packing up and leaving is what kills them. I mean, it's, you know, they're leaving their support network, you're putting stress on them, they're not near their doctors, they're not near their churches. Those are the things that turn, take people who are you know, in marginal condition and maybe put them in an extreme condition. I, I have to say that's not at all what I expected to hear you say, and that's, uh, that's something I, I'm really intrigued by and I'm going to want to talk with you more about. Um, but I, I also have um, Johnny Bradbury waiting on the line to um, come in. Let me hear your um, uh, final thoughts, uh, Mark, for the moment. And uh, as you know, we're going to have this um, Living with Climate Change uh, series of charrettes mm-hmm. in the River House um, Crevasse 22 in Poitras starting on the 18th. And so I'll be looking forward to your thoughts. But eva- uh, evacuation is not option number one. And see, I always thought of that is get out, get out, fix your place up, lock it up, take your dogs and your mom and, and get if out. If you can afford to do it, that's fine. But it disrupts the entire community. It takes employees away from their, their jobs. It takes, you know, teachers out of the classroom. It takes sick people out of the hospitals and the nursing homes. There are times when you must do it and you must do it well. But we've gone from not ever evacuating to sometimes now evacuating as your first choice of action. And I think we should be really thoughtful, you know, going forward, you know, how you balance that. And it's one of the reasons I think you do need a coast that protects our levees. You need to live smartly behind the levees. But there are some storms waiting out there that the only smart thing you can do is get out. Um, and maybe you don't have to, maybe it's just certain people in the community, you know, who are more risk than others. We should be thinking about that. I mean, if I'm living in, you know, a, a part of the city that's eight feet below sea level, I know I'm going to flood before somebody lives at plus two. We should make sure that those people know that they need to get out and they know that there's a place for them to go. Mark, on that, I'm going to um, uh, move on. I, I, I you, You've really sort of... Um You've told me something I wasn't thinking in this way at all because I'm one of those people who just wants to get out so badly. I mean, the worst experience of my life was sitting in a bathroom in Kokomo, Indiana, waiting for a tornado to hit the motel that it had hit before. I was working for Bobby Kennedy at the time, and I'm afraid of weather. Um, more to come. Thank you so much for Thank coming you, on. And tell Johnny hello. He's got a big job to do. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Okay, um, I, I think we have Johnny on. Uh, can I? All right, Johnny. Yes, hello. Johnny Bradbury. Um, I, I don't, have you been listening at all? Were you able to hear the previous speaker? I caught the, about the last uh, 30 seconds of what uh, Mark was saying. Well, it was so interesting because it was not at all what I expected to hear. 
and and I, I think it's because I have a prejudice in favor of um, just getting out of town when things are looking scary with a storm coming. And and his position is that evacuation should not be our first option, that it disrupts the entire community, that we have to be much more thoughtful, get behind the levees, and protect, especially those who cannot afford to uproot and get out. But um, I, I'm curious, you, you have a huge responsibility. You are now the executive assistant to the governor for Coastal Affairs and chair of the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. A mouthful, but what it boils down to is you've got our backs. Well, uh, I think in a sense uh, you're, you're correct. Um, it's, a, it's a big job. We have a uh, tremendous issue on the coast. Day in, day out, we're losing coastline, and and it's a it's a big job trying to uh, make sure that the money we have we spend it wisely, and that we do a good job there and, and get us some protection on the front line. So, what does that mean? That means levees. That means coastal restoration. Uh, that means uh, community resiliency, uh, raising homes, doing what we need to do to keep people out of uh, harm's way to the best of our abilities. And those people that want to stay on the coast, that need to stay on the coast, that have a livelihood here, it means protecting them to the utmost uh, of our abilities. And I understand, I wasn't there this morning, but I understand that the governor, who you work with obviously very closely on these matters, um, made that commitment. He said, we're, we're going to do what we got to do, and we are going to protect our people. We're, that's correct. And, you know, he is very adamant about that. I would say he's a coastal governor. I would say that in a heartbeat. Um, he, uh, he is fully behind what we're trying to do. He's assuring that uh, the monies that we've got coming in are being spent on, on coastal projects. Uh, he and I have had discussions about what our priorities should be. And so he's in tune with uh, with all of this, and and uh, I really applaud him for that. And it's a pleasure working for somebody who's not focused around that issue. Well, tell me, you, you mentioned priorities, and and that's something that is is so difficult to deal with because it, all of this is coming at us in, in, from so many different directions. You know, everybody can debate what the causes are, but we know that they're multiple. You know, we know that uh, we have too much silt flowing out into the Gulf instead of into our delta because of the levees on the river. We know that we have land um, subsiding partially due to the extraction of, of minerals and oils and so forth, but also I guess there's some, something of a natural process of sinking. Um, ocean rise, um, uh, oil channels. I mean, we're being hit from many different directions. So how on earth do you set priorities with all that going on? <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of variables in this in this formula for degradation of the coast. A lot of things that are happening is a very dynamic coast. But, you know, our, our one biggest issue is that, um, you know, once the levees on the Mississippi were built way back when, uh, that's when we really started, you know, uh, the man-made issue. That's when we really started seeing the effects of a lack of sediment going into our marshes. So, uh, in a sense, you know, this was man-made a, a long time ago, but we've got to live with protection of our people, and we've got to live with, you know, having a commercial uh, viability and feasibility, and that's what spurred, obviously, the levies. Uh, how, you know, how we go about trying to catch up with the sediment that we've lost over these last decades is the real challenge. Uh, how do we get sediment back into the marshes? How do we restore the marshes? Um, and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a very challenging task. 
what what can what can the average citizen do? What can we out here in 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 the community do to help um, folks like you who are trying to figure it out from from all angles? Um, and 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 of course we we have the challenge of just literally what do we do with our own home? So when somebody wants to raise a house, that is a big project. And, 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 and if somebody lives in Broadmoor or Lakeview or the Lower Ninth Ward and, the, and they're faced, I, I was shocked when I saw the recent information about the level of uh, the, the rate of sinking in New Orleans, the stories about that. That was kind of scary, and that, that hit home for me. I, my main house is on Esplanade Avenue, but my um, our art studio and project in, in the Holy Cross, Holy Cross turns out to be one of the areas sinking faster than other parts of the city. Uh, so, you know... Um, I, I, I literally, I, I look at that and I say, well, what do I do? All right. Well, I, I think the first thing that people need to do is to, be, is to become as educated as possible uh, about, you know, what the situation is and to know, to know it so that when there are debates, when there are, um, you know, uh, inquiries into what the people think, then they can, they can be educated enough to be able to comment on it and, be, and to be and hold a constructive uh, conversation around what the situation is. Uh, there, there are going to be times when our people are going to need to influence and discuss these issues with our, congr- our congressmen in, in Washington to try to uh, get them to act like we want them to act. And so they can't really do that unless they're educated, unless they appreciate the, 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 the issues that revolve around our coast. So my, you know, I think you stay in tune with what the issues are, and you you listen to um, your governor. You, you listen to uh, organizations like the CPRA. Uh, you work towards trying to get answers to some of the questions you might have and just generally become educated so that you can hold a decent conversation, and more importantly, you can influence people, particularly in D.C., about our situation and how they might be able to help. I really, um, I hear you on that, and uh, I, I was involved um, a, lo- a while back when I, I first came back to New Orleans after working for a while elsewhere and worked on the America's Wetland campaign and, and um, helped uh, get the women of the storm off the ground. And, and those ladies, when they went up there to talk to the um, legislators, I think they definitely had an impact. And so I, I think that's really hitting the nail right on the head is that we can't just sit back, uh, I think, Get educated, understand it, deal with our own personal situation, our personal homes and communities, but then also make sure that we're, um, we're, we're realizing that we do have a role after somebody gets elected. It doesn't end there. We can continue to work on it. Um, closing words, uh, what specifically right now do you see on the horizon that's happening that you think is a development that we really have to pay attention to and get educated about? Well, I think that there's a lot of talk about diversions. There's a lot of talk about sea level rise. There's a lot of talk about subsidence. Understanding those three issues are critical. All of those uh, parameters are being taken into account as we build and model uh, our, our you know, actions along the coast so that we can predict and do projects that are, that are and bring the most value to the table. And so, you know, understanding sea level rise and what its consequences are, understanding uh, subsidence and what its consequences are, and building those into our models and then selecting projects that 
will, uh, to the best of their abilities, offset those uh, those conditions. So that's extremely important. From, from, a, from a diversion perspective, there's a lot of talk about there about what it, what they will and won't do. Um, and this is where, again, this is clear a clear case of getting educated. And so when there are public meetings, uh, if, you, if there are questions that you have and, and you, you know, you can call in the CPRA, you can look at the website, you can try to find as, as much as you can about that issue, and then, again, understand it and, and uh, hold a decent conversation around it and be able to act uh, uh, when some issues come up regarding that. Well said. And um, a, a diversion is a – it's interesting that you chose that one because, of course, that's – one where there's a lot of push and pull, the fishermen, of course, the oystermen, they're always um, very concerned about um, diversion, which brings fresh water into uh, what they like to uh, keep a certain salinity level for the for their oyster crops, and and so you have that uh, pushing against the need to get that fresh water and that sediment out into the marsh. So that's that's a complicated dynamic right there. So um, I think okay. So educating. What what do you recommend people do? Is there a website that you all maintain that you want folks to take a look at? Yeah, you can you could call. Um, Chuck Paradin, you can call myself, um, and, you know, you can go to the CPRA website and get the information you need, uh, and we can uh, certainly answer your questions and help with that. So uh, the CPRA website, what's what's the address on that? Coastal.la.gov. Coastal.la.gov. That's so, easy enough. All right. Well, gentlemen, um, and, and thank you, Chuck, for uh, um, making it uh, possible for um, Johnny Bradbury uh, to join us. And, Johnny, you have a big challenge. Um, I'm going to keep up the pressure. Um, we've got these uh, charrettes that we're going to be doing in, in Poitras for uh, over several months and uh, try to keep this alive. And, and um, um, good luck to you. Thank you very absolutely. much for coming on absolutely. with us. Absolutely, and, and I'm, I'm willing to uh, speak with you at any time. I appreciate it. You take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. I'm going to give you a break from this uh, technology uh, issue that the phone company apparently is trying to um, get at. Um, and I know we've been listening to some squealing, so we're going to talk in person for a little bit now with um, one of the folks who's been out there on the uh, on the ramparts, so to speak, uh, along with myself and many others during the past uh, now almost 11 years. Um, since the storm, trying to figure out, again, how to work on, again, you know, terra firma is, is a good place to be, but there's challenges on solid ground as well as out in the marshes, and those challenges have to do with, you know, trying to figure out how to um, develop plans that, again, preserve and grow our legacy, uh, welcome improvements, um, and change, which is not something we always really want in New Orleans because we're so in love with what we have, but we, we do have to welcome the new as well. Um, and, and how we really merge the interests of individuals, neighborhoods, government, private sector. That, that's, a pro, that's a dynamic that has been difficult for all of us to negotiate since the storm. The one thing that's happened is that there are more players who came 
to be involved one way or another. And Keith Twitchell, who is the president of the Committee for a Better New Orleans, is one of those people who came forward to work on this. And um, it's it's been a <laughs> it's been a challenging decade. It has, and uh, you know the people of New Orleans have really, really stepped up, and in so many ways, they, they've not only taken care of uh, picking up the pieces of their lives, their families that are separated, their homes that were devastated, their businesses that were threatened, but they've also come together collectively to um, help plan a better future for New Orleans. And of course, one of the biggest of those events was the New Orleans Master Plan that we uh, adopted, I think it was back in 2009, and that master plan is now open for review and amendment. And, you know, for a lot of people, first off, we're, we're burned out. Everybody in New Orleans has been to more meetings in the last 10 years than they ever wanted to go to in their entire lives. But it's really important to remember that this is our plan. The master plan belongs to us, the people, the community. Uh, thousands of us came together uh, seven years ago to create that plan. Um, and whether it's always followed or not, it remains the playbook for New Orleans' future. And so now that we have this period uh, where we're open to review it and to amend it, it's critical that uh, I guess we suck it up one more time, and well, probably not one more time, but suck it up now and really get involved. Well, it's, it's every five years, right? So uh, the master plan is a is like the Bible now for us for how um, our communities will develop and go forward. But every five years, um, it's a y'all come y'all come and, and tell us what is working for you, what isn't, and how can we change it. So that that's a complicated process, right there. How, how, tell me how that process is working, will work, and, and again, the question I always put forth to my audience, how are we going to work with that? What are we going to do? Right. So, um, yeah, it does happen every five years, which is important. I mean, you know, we grow as a city. We grow as people. Uh, we can't just say that, okay, we're done, and this is the way it's going to be for the next 30 years. So from now through the end of July, there's an open period where anybody – can submit an amendment to the master plan. So so now to the end of July, so that means the next 60 days, basically. Yeah, next yeah. two months. Okay. And, and I really want to emphasize, there's no magic to this. There's no special expertise or language. If there's something that you think that is either in the master plan and needs to be revised or that is not in the master plan, um, you have as much right as anybody else in the city of New Orleans to submit an amendment. And it doesn't have to be in fancy planning language. It simply has to state what it is you think should be changed. And and, and I'm not going to pretend that the, the master plan is easy beach reading or something, but it's not particularly a technical document. It's in multiple volumes. The volume that people should read is is volume two, and it's arranged by chapters. So if they're of an issue of particular concern to you, just look at the chapters and read the chapters that, that most uh, align with your interests. But it really, it does take all of us to stay on top of this document and to stay on top of this process. And you can submit as an individual or as part of an organization or as a uh, collaboration of organizations. Um, or collaboration of people, just 
be part of the process because if we don't, then it doesn't get better. Give me an example of um, some of the issues that um, uh, are maybe in play where you you sense that uh, there's going to be some work to change the document and that to to give us a flavor for uh, the kind of things that people can expect to be able to work on. Sure. I I think a particular one is very much related to what you were talking about earlier, and that's water management in New Orleans. We have to worry about what's going on at the coast, absolutely, but we also need to do a much better job of managing just the summer rains like we have had today in New Orleans. I mean, just as recently as about three or four weeks ago, we had a massive cloudburst. In my neighborhood, it rained a little bit. I got uptown, and there were cars underwater. Submerged, and yeah. this is where we're working on on the flood the flood uh, control. So we can't just keep doing what we're doing. So the new master plan, uh, the revisions need to incorporate the latest technologies, the latest strategies, other than just pumping the water out, because that doesn't work. Land use, of course, is always um, a key part of, of planning for the future. So, you know, people should be aware of what the, the maps for their area are and what the what the potential uses of land in their areas are. Um, and, you know, I think we need to be very mindful of the economic development sections. Um, I think there has been a lot of good that's happened in economic development since Katrina, but it has not been inclusive. Um, uh, I know a sector that you're very involved with is the arts and cultural sector. That has not necessarily been well served. Uh, We have some horrifying unemployment statistics amongst parts of our population. So that's another area of the master plan we might want to look at and see what we can put in there that will help solve those problems. So, so that that means to figure out what should go in there, that that requires dialogue between people in the community and public officials who have the responsibilities for these activities. So, do you anticipate how's that going to work? How are we going to make sure that the New Orleans Business Alliance, that GNO Inc that the mayor's economic development uh, people who are literally on staff in the city. I mean, there's a lot of different entities, uh, the chambers um, involved, and, and, and then really the surrounding parishes as well. We all have to be working together. I'm not sure we are working together enough, especially in economic development. It's a little bit competitive. But, um, you know, how, how, how do you see that process going forward? What, what, can, what can I do? Right. Well, one thing to keep in mind is it is the New Orleans master plan. So looking at that really macro level, um, the plan isn't really designed to do that. So I'm thinking more looking at um, the entrepreneurial level, the neighborhood level of economic development. That's where we can really focus on in, in terms of the master plan. And as far as intersecting with government, this is going to be a process that will take a year in totality. So we have this two-month period through the end of July to submit amendments. Then the Planning Commission staff will sift through all the amendments submitted, group them by subject area, and then there will be a series of public meetings where they will simply present what is now, in essence, the raw material. These are going to be really important because no decisions will be made prior to these meetings. This is where the community can weigh in, can review the amendments, and again, you can look at the ones in the areas that are of most interest to you, 
And you can say, look, these, this is good. This is the direction we want to be going in. These changes, these are going in the wrong direction. Um, it, it, there will be public comment periods during this meeting. So this is where we can take the raw material of the massive amendments and begin shaping it into the sculpture of what we want the revisions to the master plan to look like. Staff will then go back and take that input and come up with a, a proposed set of actual amendments. They will be written in more of a, of a, a more formal language. It still will be pretty accessible. Um, Planning Commission staff does a pretty good job with, with not getting into really technical stuff, and especially in the master plan context. And that's truly when the rubber is going to hit the road, because that's when we're talking about this amendment is being proposed, this amendment is being proposed, that amendment got dropped off the list. And there will again be the, uh, some meetings uh, in front of the Planning Commission and then ultimately City Council. And that's when you can say that amendment should not be admitted and this one is good and what happened to this one we proposed because there will be an opportunity when the Planning Commission and the Council vote to restore things that the staff did not recommend. Long process and, um, you know, please pay attention as it goes forward. The key right now, though, is that we've got to get the raw material in. You can't, you can't sculpt anything if you don't have the material to start with. Well, what are you expecting to see? What do you think um, some of the, you know, already people are making comments, right? They're starting to come in, aren't they? Yeah, that process actually began about a month ago. So. Well, that's why I remember seeing yeah. some email on that. So what are you hearing uh, are, are some of the key issues that people are raising? Well, certainly the water management. Um, I was asked to come speak to some people yesterday about the civic engagement component of the master plan, which there is an entire chapter on that, Chapter 15. Uh, unfortunately, nothing has been done, uh, really, uh, to implement much of what's in that chapter. Uh, we do have the city planning NPP, which is uh, based on a much larger proposal that Committee for a Better New Orleans has put forth for uh, comprehensive civic engagement, but uh, people want to know, they want to look at what's in that chapter and, and improve it, and they want to start building in some kind of um, mandate to actually, you know, this is our master plan, we're supposed to be implementing it. They want to know how can we implement what we now said seven years ago we were going to do and haven't done. Because and, and and also there's still um, there's still a tendency for people to come before the planning commission, come before the HDLC, and then if they don't get satisfaction, to go to the council and then undo the basic principles of the master plan. That's that's really something that you see happening, despite everybody's best wishes for the master plan to be the last word. Well, I, I think this goes back to why it's so important for people to participate. Because if we go through this review and amendment process and a couple hundred people show up, um, that creates a lot of space for people in government to say, well, if the community really supported this, they'd have showed up. If we show up by the thousands again, uh, they don't have any right to say that, that they know better because we've showed up and we've said this is our plan, this is what we want it to be, this is our vision for the future, and we hired you to implement the vision we created. Well said. <laughs> All right. Now, speaking of uh, engagement, there's, a, there's an, another question, and that has to do with the city's budget and how the decisions in the budget get made. And, and actually, um, I want to ask you something, uh, either on the air or off, and I, I, I'm curious. To, I would like to know better what various agencies are spending 
their money on. So not just what the budget is going to be, but what actually is being spent on. I want to know, how do you look that up? So um, Committee for Better New Orleans has just released two new websites. One of them is um, BigEasyBudget.org. That, and and I want to give the budget staff credit because they really helped us with this, that site will show you the city's annual budget to actual spending going all the way back to 2007, and it's done in a way that's visual. So it's not an 800-page book of budget text that the city puts out. It is graphs and charts, and you can look by general spending category, by individual department. It's not necessarily going to tell you exactly that Parks and Parkway spent, you know, this much money trimming oak trees and that much money cutting the grass, but you're going to know what the department spent and get some idea of its activities with that money. Okay. Um, but I, I, I do want to know how much money they spent on oak trees versus right. the neutral ground. So if you want to deep dive, if you want to take that deeper dive, how do you do that? I don't know. I'm not sure you can. Um, our our budget process is a bit more generalized in a lot of ways, and I will also tell you that when the city council says we're going to give, these are very arbitrary numbers, but when the city council says we're going to give $5 million to um, public works and we want them to spell, spend $1.6 million on paving streets and 900000 on sidewalks and $1.3 million on fixing traffic lights. The council says that's what they want. They allocate $5 million to public works, and then inside the administration is where the actual spending decisions are made. Now, if they start really – they report to the council, and if they start really deviating, the council can stop the pipeline of money flowing. But the council budget is not – the actual mandate for exactly how every dollar is going to be spent. So you'll find, again, you'll find some of that in in the site, BigEasyBudget.org, but um, it's only so deep a dive you can take. So it's your money, it's your city, you decide. So the idea is that, tell me how this is going to work. So this is the second website, and I don't want to confuse people, but this one is BigEasyBudgetGame.com. And this is an interactive website we've just put out, and it lets each and every one of you that is listening right now create your own version of the city budget. You can also do it on your phone as well as your tablet or your computer. And what it does is it shows each agency that the city funds in its operating budget. It shows you what they do. If you want to learn more, there's a Learn More button. You can get a lot deeper dive into what they do. Then it shows you what they got last year, and you get to give them either more, less, or the same amount as they got last year. And there's a running tally, so you know how much money you got left and how many agencies you have left to fund. And what we're going to do is, uh, as we get into the budget cycle, which is not all that far away now, we will compile all the responses we get from all the people in New Orleans into the people's budget. And we will give it to the budget staff, to the mayor, and the city council so that they can get real detailed composite input from the real people of New Orleans as they start making budget decisions. I I love this. I think that is so cool. That is going to be very, very interesting. So, And can I just say, it's actually, it may sound difficult. We find that most people are doing it in 10 to 15 minutes, 
They learn about the budget, and most people tell us they actually have fun doing it. <laughs> I can't stand doing my own budget, much less the city's. But I can see how doing the city's would be fun. I can it's see how it's more fun to play with somebody else's money. Exactly. Well, it's, but it is. It's our money. That's our money. So we should have a voice in deciding how it's spent. And and you know I, that's something I talk about on this show a lot. Is is I really try to get people to think about how they can be engaged, influence change. And not assume that once you've elected somebody, your responsibility is finished and over. And, and then you just sort of count on them doing right. And when they do wrong, you complain and rail. But the truth is, if you don't stay engaged in the process and the decision-making, you can't, you can't really have any um, lasting effects. So, and I will say that, you know, we haven't really had too much dialogue with the administration about this. But the city council, we've talked to several council members who made it very clear that they want to see the results. Uh, they want to see what people want to uh, have as spending priorities for the city. So BigEasyBudgetGame.com. Just got to keep reminding people. BigEasyBudget.org. That's the and information. And BigEasyBudgetGame.org. Dot com. Dot com. Oh, okay, let me do this again because I don't – okay, BigEasyBudget.org. And BigEasyBudgetGame.org. Dot com. Uh, okay. <laughs> One more time. This, 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 so this, they, they're definitely going to have, have it now. BigEasyBudget.org and BigEasyBudgetGame.com. Yep. Okay. And do and, it because we really want to know what you think. Okay. And, and also, again, this is the committee for Better New Orleans, Keith Twitchell's been at how long? How many years have you been at this, Keith? Twelve years. What 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 keeps you uh, going on this? Um, I love New Orleans. I I didn't grow up here. I can't answer where did you go to school correctly, but I moved here straight out of school. I've been here for 36 years. Uh, I can't imagine living anywhere else. Um, and I guess I grew up at the end of the 60s, and I'm one of those people that believes that. Um, the status of the lowest among us is the status we all share on some level. And I believe that the way to make New Orleans great, to res restore it to being one of the truly great cities of the world, is if we really engage and empower everybody in our community. Thank you for that. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for being with us this morning, this thank afternoon. Thank you for this opportunity. And I am going to continue on now and talk to another of the heroes of the city, a citizen who's been working hard on the Faulkner Fest, and I think, Rosemary James, are you on the line? I am, and I was very interested in what the gentleman had to say. And do you know Keith? No, I don't know. Well, he's somebody you should know. He's, he's a hardworking citizen, as you, as you could hear. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a kind of a kick to work on, those, um, on the game and on the budget, so uh, to check in on, on what's happening. Thank you very much, Keith. Rosemary James, you've got a big party coming up, and it's one of my favorites. So when I saw your email, I said, yeah, i got to do something on that because it's important to support the Faulkner Society and what it does, uh, but it's also darn important to have a good party in summer, and it's called Juleps in June, and I love mint juleps. So <laughs> this is my kind of event, my kind of party. Well, I hope you're coming. <laughs> well, tell me about it. All right, well, you know, we've been doing this for a number of years now, and, uh, you know, people who've been coming uh, for the entire time love it. Uh, newcomers love it and come back, and they love the whole tradition. 
we <clears throat> we serve the mint juleps as is properly done in uh, silver julep cups, and they are made according to Faulkner's recipe. And <clears throat> the silver cups are engraved with juleps in June and the year, and these are the patron fa- uh, favors for the event. Some people have a whole lot of julep cups since they've been coming for so many years. Um, and that's that's the kind of the focus of it in terms of decor. Uh, we always look for an interesting uh, residential venue, and this year's venue is lovely. It's a, it's a traditional, beautiful Garden District mansion, which has been completely overhauled by the owners, Andrea and David Bland. Uh, and th- there's been a large rear addition made, and uh, that addition makes this a real party palace. It's a, it has everything you can possibly uh, need to have a good party. And um, entertainment and honorable guests, well, honored guests. Well, we have uh, music, and uh, every year we uh, honor some literary figures that we feel are, you know, superbly talented. And this year, the fiction writers we're honoring are uh, a husband and wife team. They're both exceptional novelists. Uh, The wife is Carrie Brown, and she's had uh, seven historical novels that are really unusually fine literary historical novels published to high acclaim. And her husband, who's a New Orleans native, John Gregory Brown, who we've been watching ever since he was uh, a debut author of a book called Decorations in a Ruined Cemetery. Uh, if that doesn't sound like a New Orleans title, I don't know what <laughs> uh, That's exactly what I was going to say, right. <laughs> and uh, his new book is uh, out this year is uh, A Thousand Miles from Nowhere, and it's all about the, the loss and displacement and redemption uh, of those who were forced to flee. And it's a, and I think the best thing that's been written in the aftermath of uh, Katrina in the way of literary fiction. Well, that's such an important subject because if there's anything that we really don't know almost anything about is what happened to the people who one day were shipped out of here on a bus. And it was really kind of a, a, a forced migration and a, and a really a sad a turn of events for the city, and, and too many of those folks have not come back. Um, some of them we know are, are doing okay. Their kids are in school. They have jobs. And others, I think, are pining to come back and, and can't for one reason or another. And so I'm interested to hear that. Is this book a nonfiction book or a novel? No, this is a novel, and it really focuses on one eccentric New Orleanian. And, uh, you know, an example of how New Orleans treats its closet cases, and we don't hide them in the closet, and how he coped in the aftermath of Katrina. Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. It really is. And his wife's new book is called The Stargazer's Sister. She always picks an interesting uh, historical figure and takes a unique look at that figure in her fiction. Then we've got a third author, Kim Vaz Deville. Kim is a uh, professor at Xavier University, and she uh, published a new book this year, which is nonfiction, 
and the name of that book is The Doll Babies, and it's a look at the role of women in the street parade culture of New Orleans, especially black women. And uh, I think she added a, a great deal to the research resources about Carnival in New Orleans with this book. So those are our three literary guests of honor. And as you know, one of the highlights of the event, every year we uh, have an artist uh, paint a portrait of Mr. Faulkner from a different point of view. This year, uh, the artist, uh, Grace Boshock, who divides her time between New Orleans and uh, Cape May, New Jersey, did a, a marvelous watercolor of Faulkner listening to jazz in a club uh, during the time when he was uh, writing his first novel in the 20s. Uh, it's very evocative, and it's important, uh, we think, because uh, people have always wondered why his um, rhythm in his literature was so um, strange. And a lot of scholars and a lot of music people as well believe that he was influenced by the jazz he heard and that his writing is just a literary version of a, an improv riff. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I can definitely see that. I, I, I can hear it. Well, mm -hmm. Stanley Crouch, who is one of the uh, nation's leading music writers, he's also a huge Faulkner fan, uh, has gone off on uh, many tangents but always comes back to this when he's discussing Faulkner. Uh, so I think that the painting is perfect for this year. I'm looking at it now uh, from the email that you sent me, and it, it is, it's a lovely, it kind of reminds me of some of the work at the Sazerac Bar at the uh, Roosevelt. It's, it's a little bit uh, more impressionistic, not as hard-edged, but it's, um, it definitely is, as you said, evocative of a, a courtyard uh, in New Orleans, and, and you can imagine Faulkner doing exactly what he's doing in this um, a painting, sitting in a cafe, listening to jazz music, and smoking his pipe, and smoking his <laughs> pipe. And so, so what is what uh, the, the Faulkner Society and and your your big festival event? Uh, it's it's the um, uh, it's called Words and Music. Words and Music, and again, you you do that literary thing, and you also do the, the uh, a lot of music in it as as well. So it's it's a beautiful combination. Well, thank you, darling. And when is that going to be this year, the festival? Uh, the festival this year is November the 9th through the 13th, and we have a great program planned, and if you'll have me back on, I'll discuss it in detail. With you. Okay, but let's give people one more reminder. I'm getting the, the music to sh close down the show, and tell me again, it's this Friday night? Friday at night at 7 o'clock, Juleps in June, 1216 Jackson Avenue, uh, and you can buy tickets at the door. Thank you, and um, have a blast. I hope to be there. Thanks a lot, Jean. All right, take bye -bye. care. Bye-bye. And bye-bye, everybody. This is Jean Nathan, Cross-Town Conversations.